This is a Federal News Network podcast. By nearly all accounts, the federal workforce will be highly hybrid in the post-pandemic era. Few will return to the office five days a week. Few will telework five days a week. For one view of what this means for technology and the investments needed to support the new work mode, we turn to the president of HP Federal, Todd Gustafson. Mr. Gustafson, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Good to be with all of you. And you've been following this market for quite some time, haven't you? I have. I've had the pleasure of being with HP for over 30 years, so I've seen many different aspects of it, none like today. Yes, and so let's get right into it. What do you think needs to change in terms of the technology mix, or what will the future infrastructure to support people that are all over the place and not any one place in any given time to be able to work effectively without you know, blowing billions of dollars that you don't need to spend? If you think back to March of 2020, it was for many of our government colleagues, it was around just getting devices and getting technology in the hands of all of our colleagues in the marketplace, something to use that was a notebook or a desktop or something that had a camera and a microphone. And given the supply constraints and the pace at which the market rapidly adopted work from home, it was all about just filling that immediate need. After that's happened now, people are starting to recognize that this is the new norm for us, right? It's not a finish line necessarily, but I would say that we're at the beginning of this starting line in terms of what does this new world look like for us? And so what does the devices look like? How do they want to integrate them into their home environment? And I'll give you an example. We have three now grown children, dogs, everything at home. I'm not unlike a lot of other folks How does technology integrate into that environment so that you're in an environment where the sound is not obtrusive to your engagement, et cetera? And so you're starting to see companies like HP adopt video technologies, microphone technology, speaker technologies that recognizes an environment that may not be as sterile as a work environment. So you've outlined a range of issues here. One is the network, one is the cybersecurity, and the other is just simply the end-user devices that have to accommodate that. And let's talk about the end-user devices. That's kind of your specialty there. I mean, when are we going to get higher quality cameras and microphones and just those things, not because they're nice to have, but because they really do improve collaboration and reduce the fatigue of being on these video calls that so many people express? Tom, I think that technology exists today and is continuing to have improvements. You know, we announced just last month that we were going to acquire Poly. Uh, Many of you know Poly is one of the leaders in collaboration, both in audio and video collaboration. And a lot of that collaboration has happened, if you will, in a conference room and an office environment. And we're adapting that same technology to bring it into a device. And the reality is most of us don't want to carry an extra microphone, an extra camera, an extra speaker with us. So how do we take that technology that may have been separate component standpoint and build it into a device so that you get very high quality video and audio and in an environment where you may have a 20 to 24 hour battery life in in a device where you don't have to carry a power cord. So then it seems like the IT staffs in agencies need to really rethink the mix of what it is they're going to do in the next one, three, five years. You know, just last week I was out at the Department of Energy in Albuquerque, and I'll give you a real example, because one of the challenges that they're facing and they're talking about is how do they continue to acquire a workforce where in the past they may have only had 
one to two percent job openings now that's in a double digit range and so how do they might use technology particularly from a generational standpoint to attract a new workforce number one and how might they integrate that new technology in a rich collaboration environment in a way that attracts that workforce so they're seeing not just pay necessarily or government benefits as a key element, but rather the technology is a key element to attract a new workforce. Yes, because everything you read about the emerging graduates and the younger workers in the private sector, they're very demanding on what they'll be doing specifically, who they'll be working for, and the environment that they'll be working in. They're driving the change, which is really refreshing, if you will, uh, as opposed to absorbing the change. They're driving that change and they're pushing the technology limits and what they want to do and how they want to do it and how on any given moment they integrate their personal environment in their work environment. And they expect that to happen on the same exact device. We're speaking with Todd Gustafson. He's the president of HP Federal. And what about printing? Every and you sell printers, but every government CIO that I've talked to says the last thing they're going to do is send everybody home also with a printer. And really, they're looking at ways to finally get rid of printing. And I presume that's to some degree in the office. What are the best alternatives to giving everyone a printer at home? You know, it's interesting, Tom, that you are right. There's an element that the printing environment is certainly changing. And if we're not in the office, you know, we've determined that between 10 and 20% of our normal print volumes are down. That's happening across the industry. The reality is that all of us still use print as some part of our everyday work life. And the question is, how can we print securely? How can we manage our costs? How can we control that environment in such a way? And in a lot of cases, what I think it requires is industry experts, companies like HP, that can come in and do an evaluation of, What does your workforce look like? What does your printing environment look like? Might you downsize your environment or make it more efficient? And the reality is that unless you drive that optimization in a very proactive way, you're likely going to have excess cost in your environment. And so lots of companies in the marketplace can help drive that optimization. All right. So maybe sum it up for us then. What does an IT investment strategy look like for the next wave of what work is going to look like? So I think there's a couple of things that organizations and government agencies need to look at. First is just talk about personas. Who is your workforce? What does that workforce look like? And what are the job responsibilities? And so your devices and the technology you implement is going to vary depending upon the knowledge worker and what they're expected to do. That's first and foremost. One size won't fit all, number one. Number two is What are the requirements of those folks? Are they working in finance? Are they working in engineering, right? So that'll help drive that. And what is the mobility of that workforce? What are they doing there? And then lastly, recognize that security is a multi-layer security element, right? We think about cyber, no longer is about putting a fence around your environment, but recognizing that that fence has to be penetrable because you want email, you want video, you want internet usage, and how might you adopt technologies like micro virtualization, et cetera, that helps protect your environment in a way that makes it less susceptible to bad actors. And there's also the question, I guess, of having zero trust, which is policy and law now really in the land, and yet not making it so difficult that people don't log on or they find workarounds. Totally agree. And the workaround is the biggest challenge. And from what you've seen of the last couple of years dealing with federal agencies and their IT and acquisition staffs, 
is the acquisition system that is generally in place, is that adequate for going forward? Or do you see any possible updates there that might be needed to support all of these new work requirements? You know, we're beginning to see real leadership across the government on life cycle management for devices. And you have examples in the Department of Veterans Affairs, you have the U.S. Navy, the Air Force is three key examples where they're really adopting a full life cycle management from product definition through sustainability, the products they acquire, how are they sustainable? How do we recycle that environment? How do we dispose of them in that environment? And how might they adopt technology to help them through life cycle management? And how do they remove themselves from asset management and how they allow industry to do that best? That's one of the key elements that I see as uh, driving new acquisition behavior. So we could have the return of seat management in the 21st century. That's a great example, Tom. All right. Todd Gustafson is president of HP Federal. Thanks so much for joining me. Glad to be with you. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village. That was, I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do 
at min- especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, You know, from historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time.
Helping your employees learn new cloud skills helps your business become more agile, more resilient, and more secure. Not helping employees learn new cloud skills causes your business to become less agile, less resilient, less secure, less innovative, less profitable, and, well, ultimately less of a business. Don't become less of a business. Try Pluralsight and get your employees everything they need to learn new cloud skills. Learn more at Pluralsight.com vision. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com.